Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello, everyone. Welcome back. I'm your host, James Rogers, and this is the History Hit Warfare podcast. If it is your first time here, we are dedicated to the strategies, technologies, leaders and wars that have changed the course of history. Speaking of which, we're focusing on the Battle of Waterloo in this episode, and especially Napoleon's litany of mistakes that led him to drawing defeat from the jaws of victory. It is, of course, the 206th anniversary of Waterloo, so it's a perfect time to get the brilliant historian and Napoleon nut Zach White back on the podcast. He takes us step-by-step through this monumental, world-changing battle. So here he is, Zach White on the Battle of Waterloo. Hi, Zach. Welcome back onto the History Hit Warfare podcast. How are you doing today? Oh, I'm very well, James. It's great to see you again. It's great to be back so soon after we discussed how Napoleon perhaps wasn't the greatest thing since sliced bread. But yeah, I'm really looking forward to discussing Waterloo with you today. Probably one of history's most unnecessary battles and certainly one of its most misunderstood. Ooh, okay. Misunderstood and unnecessary. Yeah, well, you were a hit the last time you came on, Zach, so we had to get you back on. It's the 206th anniversary of Waterloo, and so we need to know all of the details. You've tempted us there, so take us into it. What were the origins of this battle? If I just ride back through my mind a little bit, had Napoleon not just been in exile? Absolutely, and this is why it's unnecessary. Napoleon had lost the war. It's genuinely as simple as that. In 1814, he had been forced to abdicate from the throne of France after a very successful invasion, firstly from the south by a combined British, Spanish and Portuguese force under the command of Wellington, who we'll discuss a great deal today. And then also from the east by force, again, a coalition force consisting of Austrians, Prussians and Russian troops. Collectively, they had converged on France, splitting the remaining French forces, and eventually Napoleon had to accept the inevitable. You know, there was no way that he could win this campaign. So he signed his abdication, hoped that his son would be placed in his place, if you will, as Emperor of France. That didn't happen. And what did happen is that the Allies restored the Bourbon monarchy, which had been in place in France way back in 1789 at the start of the French Revolution. So it's a real turning back of the clock for France, although a lot of the legal changes that Napoleon had made did stay. So Napoleon himself then gets exiled to Elba, an island in the Mediterranean, which he's given as a kind of mini kingdom to rule. He's meant to receive a pension, uh, which he doesn't actually get. He's given a small bodyguard of a thousand men, perhaps not the most intelligent thing to do to give the emperor an army, but it is only a thousand men. A couple of small boats to kind of use as a makeshift navy. So he's given this sort of mini fiefdom, if you will, to rule. And he's quite energetic about it at first, really throws himself into reorganising things like the road networks, education and so on within the island. But it seems to me that after a certain point, Napoleon seems to get a bit bored. The fact that he doesn't get the subsidy that he's meant to get from the Bourbon monarchy is often stated as a reason by people as to why he decides to come back. But as we discussed last time, I think Napoleon is an incredibly Machiavellian individual. And I think that decision to return in 1815 is completely driven by the nature of the man. He saw the Allies starting to squabble 
as they started to try and work out what was the status quo going to look like in the wake of having got rid of Napoleon. And in the process of that, the arguments and the rifts started to re-emerge because the unifying thing for all of these European powers had been, we've got to defeat Napoleon. He represents far too much of a threat to the order within Europe. So I think when I look at the situation, Napoleon sees that and seeks to capitalise on it. He flees Elba, manages to use a couple of those ships that I just mentioned that we had given him with his very small army of 1,000 men, and he lands in the south of France. Now, 1,000 men, you're not going to do a lot of damage with that, admittedly, but what becomes very apparent is that the army, which was always utterly devoted to Napoleon and was a key linchpin of his power, along with the secret police, remains devoted to him. And so what happens is that the army ends up defecting almost wholesale to Napoleon's side. By no means everybody, but large proportions of it end up defecting to Napoleon. And what that therefore means is that the Bourbon King Louis is forced to flee. He flees to the Netherlands and Napoleon claims that he's found the crown of France lying in the gutter and just picks it up. This was always kind of part of his plan with the best will in the world. And he claims that he comes in peace, if you will, which the Allies really aren't buying. And so they very specifically declare war on Napoleon and make this commitment to not consider any peace terms until they've got rid of him once and for all. And so that's how we get to a situation where actually we end up having to fight another campaign, the sort of coda or the epilogue to a war that should already have been over. So there's political turmoil at this time, perhaps a bit internally with fractured political elements trying to come together to rule a country in Napoleon's wake, but also between the Allies themselves. How much weight should we put on Napoleon's political nous here? We think of him as a military leader who comes up, of course, through the military. But you described him as Machiavellian, and perhaps we don't really consider enough just the fact that you have to have so much political talent to see that there's all this indivision around you and you can come in in between those political cleavages and you can divide and conquer as you go through. Is he a political genius? Oh, I don't know about political genius. And the only reason I wouldn't say that he's not a political genius is because the mark of a genius when it comes to politics and particularly foreign policy would be a realisation of how to achieve a lasting peace settlement. And when you look all the way through Napoleon's reign, he's never able to achieve that. Does incredible things for some sections of French society back home. We talked about his reforms and how in some respects they're great. For others, particularly for women and for slaves, they're really not. But when it comes to foreign policy, the ultimate aim is that you've got to be able to find a solution to preserving the gains that you achieve in war. It's no good being great on the battlefield and then not being able to consolidate on that. And for all that there are various pieces, and yes, he's able to win the campaigns and force his enemies to the negotiating table, actually, the mark of a true genius is to be able to then find a lasting peace settlement off the back of that. As you say, the ability to identify this opportunity to divide and rule is the mark of an incredibly talented individual. And I will always say that of Napoleon. He knew more than anything else how to divide and conquer people. That's kind of a key characteristic of the man. In terms of the political divisions, I think he's also quite clever when he comes back in 1815. And the constitution is very different and he tries to position himself very differently. So initially he tries to sort of put across this image of him not as somebody who wants to drive forward the borders of France once again and reinstate France's lost glory. Instead, he tries to create a kind of constitutional monarchy. The reintroduction of slavery, which he'd been responsible for earlier in his reign, was not a factor in the constitution that he tried to bring in in 1815. So you do see some significant differences in how he's looking at ruling the country. But the fact remains that Napoleon is the usurper of a perfectly legitimate and internationally recognised French monarch. And so he can try and put forward all these constitutions that he likes. But for the Allies, this just isn't acceptable. You can't just have somebody coming in and toppling a power at your will. So this is uh, an old-fashioned military coup, isn't it, Zach? Yes, I would argue that it is, in the sense that... Well, actually, I don't know if I'd call it an old-fashioned military coup. Hang on, hang on, you disagreed with me. You can't disagree with me now. I I know, I know, I'm sorry. (laughs) I'm I'm going back on my word. This is appalling. This is really bad podcasting. Um, But no, I mean, it's an interesting question that you raise, because in one sense, yes, it is. It's absolutely a military coup, no question about that. Is it 
a textbook military coup. Well, it's very different to the one that he brings in in 1799. He's only one of a number of players, admittedly, in 1799. But it's not that kind of case of the army comes in with a defined plan. We're going to get rid of this monarchy. Instead, it almost sort of happens. It's almost like a sort of avalanche in the sense that it starts to build momentum that becomes irresistible. He lands, he's got nothing. It's not guaranteed that the army is going to defect to him. But again, it's about Napoleon being able to read people and I would argue manipulate people in such a way that he's able to get the army to think about what Napoleon the individual represents for them. And you've got to think about economics as well. In the wake of the Napoleonic Wars and the end of the Napoleonic Wars, a lot of these soldiers have been discharged from the army, which means suddenly they don't have an income. They are unemployed. And so the prospect of this guy coming back and potentially returning France to the glory days inevitably means that the man's going to need an army, which therefore means you're going to be back in employment. You're going to be doing that job that you probably look back on with sort of that rose-tinted perspective of hindsight, but you will be part of a unit. You'll be with comrades in arms, fighting, fed, being paid, all of the things that ultimately people are quite keen on. So when Napoleon comes back then, is he seen as a man of the people or a man who's going to bring hope to France once again? And like you say, that thing that we all need, a bit of security in terms of finance and food. It's a really difficult one. I mean, the thing that Charles Esdale argues is that really the enthusiasm does not exist amongst the French people. The enthusiasm quite simply exists amongst France's veterans. And so what you see amongst much of the French population is a huge war weariness. You know, you've got to bear in mind that France has been at war since the very, very early 1790s, since the execution and before even the execution of French King Louis. So they've had two decades and then some of war. This has taken a huge toll on the French population. Six million Frenchmen die in the course of this conflict as a result of France's campaigns. So for many French people, you kind of reach a point where they're not overly fussed who's in charge, just so long as they've got somebody who can produce that stability, who can produce an economic system that is stable and inevitably therefore means that you know their, their sons and their brothers and so on don't end off going off to war in order to fight and die. The flip side to that, of course, is that Napoleon always tries to use democracy as a means of legitimizing his decisions. So when you look at the coup in 1799, when you look at the decision to abolish the consulate system, when you look at the decision to instate himself as emperor, he follows all of those up with referendums. Now, for folks who've studied Nazi Germany, you might also know that Hitler has a habit of using referendums in order to try and legitimise some of his decisions. But and I would never compare Napoleon to Hitler by any stretch of the imagination. They are completely different animals politically and in terms of the way in which they did their business. But Napoleon does a, a similar kind of thing in 1815 in that he puts forward a plebiscite in order to gain that legitimacy and the result is very strongly in his favour. I think all of the Napoleonic plebiscites actually gain something like a 90% vote in favour, which instantly starts to raise a few eyebrows because such an overwhelming result is always quite iffy. And we do know that all of the plebiscites had significant problems with their voting systems. In many cases, the army was just assumed to have voted in favour. So you can count on tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of votes there just in favour without ever consulting them. You also have an environment where there is localised electoral fraud. People just add zeros on the ends of totals. They scrub out votes against even really kind of arbitrary differences, you know, sort of taking five off a particular total of votes against for no obvious reason, other than it all kind of creating this semblance of an overwhelming vote of confidence for Napoleon and what he's doing. And in that kind of environment, I think it's always quite problematic to say, ah, yes, but... We have these plebiscites. We know that Napoleon had the support of the people. In reality, when you have a rigged democracy, can you really put any faith in that democracy, in that outcome? Well, that's a big question for folks to discuss across many podcasts, not just this one. So the Allies must be getting sick of this by this point. You think you've got rid of Napoleon, but he keeps coming back like a bad penny. He's back once again. How is it that they react to this reinstatement of Napoleon back as Emperor of France? 
Well, in a way, although Napoleon picks his moment really well, his timing is absolutely awful. Because at the moment that he returns and the news travels to Vienna, what's happening in Vienna? Actually, the Allies are coming together for what is meant to be the Congress of Vienna, where they are meant to have that final big meeting to try and work out how they're going to resolve these differences. How they're going to avoid going to war over these different little nations that they want to carve up between themselves. So when the news arrives by these couriers that actually the French king, Louis, has fled, Napoleon is now on the throne of France, it's a really bad moment for Napoleon because they're all there sitting around a table able to find a solution. And the solution is very simple. We declare war on Napoleon, not on France, not on the French people, on Napoleon, and we commit to toppling him altogether. And they don't thrash out the precise details of what they're going to do with him. There's no definitive decision on that until well after the war is over. But there is that absolute commitment that they will all rearm, they will move their armies back to the French frontier, and then they will wait until everything is in place and move in as one huge force. And this is a pan-European effort. You've got Austrian forces, you've got Russian forces, Prussian, British, there's even talk of Spanish and Portuguese forces joining the fight. And so the plan is quite simply, we move all of everything in place and then we all go in at once. So all of these armies converging at the same time, making it utterly impossible for Napoleon to resist. It's in effect a repeat of that strategy that they used in 1814. Sheer weight of numbers, crushing any opposition and forcing Napoleon off the throne. So is it a misconception then that we see this as an overwhelmingly British force and a British victory? Absolutely. I'm really glad you raised that because folks might remember actually there was a bit of controversy about this when Lucy Worsley's documentary went out where she raised this question to what extent was Waterloo a German victory? To what extent has Britain overplayed its role? And what you've got to bear in mind about the force that is involved in the Waterloo campaign, which is only one section of a much bigger force that is meant to be gathering. And we'll talk about why the Waterloo campaign ends up unfolding in the way that does in a second. But within the forces that are involved in that campaign, the British contingent is actually really quite small. You've got two armies in Belgium at this time. One is actually an Anglo-Dutch force under the command of the Duke of Wellington. The other is a Prussian force under Marshal Blücher. Both commanders have had long pedigrees of fighting in the Napoleonic Wars and commanded huge respect. But let's focus for a second on the Anglo-Dutch force, which is roughly speaking about half of the forces that are involved in the Waterloo campaign on the Allied side. Of that Anglo-Dutch army, one third, exactly one third, is British. So the remainder is made up of Dutch-Belgian troops, that's about 30%, a quarter a Hanoverian. So, you know, by no means is this a British victory at Waterloo. The way to think about this, and this was put to me by a veteran who now works for the Waterloo Uncovered Charity, is think about Waterloo and the Waterloo campaign as 19th century NATO takes on Napoleon. If you want to simplify it down to that kind of a nutshell, it's a coalition victory. In fact, at the end of the Battle of Waterloo, when Wellington and Blücher meet outside an inn at the south of the Waterloo battlefield, the inn is called La Belle Alliance. And when Blücher and Wellington meet, Blücher is very keen that the battle is called the Battle of La Belle Alliance. In fact, in Germany to this day, it is still known by that name, which is a really beautiful metaphor for the reality of how the Waterloo campaign plays out. But Wellington, being Wellington, he has this habit of naming battles after the last town that he slept in the night before. And so he calls it the Battle of Waterloo and the rest, as they say, is history. And ABBA songs, of course. Yes. Don't forget ABBA. If it wasn't for Wellington, then we wouldn't have those catchy lyrics. Okay, then. So I'm going to shut up for a minute, Zach, because I want you to paint us a picture of how the Battle of Waterloo starts to unfold. Give us this imagery, the battle plan, the map. How does this play out? Okay, so you've got to bear in mind, first of all, that Napoleon has a number of problems. The first is that he's got to rearm. The second is that he hasn't got all of the people with him that he would ideally want with him, which is really important in terms of how the campaign plays out, in that he doesn't have people like Marshal Berthier, who had been his chief of staff for so much of his career. Now, why does that matter? Well, Berthier was a genius in being able to take Napoleon's thoughts 
and interpret them into orders that would make sense to commanders on the ground, which is an absolutely key role of, of any chief of staff. Now, without Berthier being with him, Berthier actually ends up dying on, I believe it's the 1st of June, 1815, in slightly suspicious circumstances. He dies in modern-day Germany, and he falls from a balcony. And there are questions about, to what extent is this suicide? To what extent is he actually pushed? Is this an assassination attempt? I was speaking to somebody the other day who suggested to me that maybe the suicide theory doesn't hold together because Berthier's wife was pregnant with their third child. So you might think, and you know, that's a whole discussion about mental health and so on, but you might not think that his mindset would be in that frame of mind. But that's open for discussion. But the crucial thing is that Berthier isn't with Napoleon. So Berthier brings in Marshal Soult, somebody who was a highly competent, very skilled commander, but wasn't and didn't have a long pedigree as a great chief of staff. And that was quite key in terms of how the campaign plays out, and particularly in terms of feeding the information that Napoleon needed back to Napoleon, and then disseminating his orders in a way that enabled the most efficient implementation of his strategy. What you also see is a lowering of standards, actually. So, for example, the latest research into the Imperial Guard that fought at Waterloo has found that, in actual fact, it's nowhere near the calibre of the Imperial Guard of old. They lower the standards in order to be able to build up this core of men, which is really key because the Imperial Guard were always meant to be this sort of shock and awe force that could be used at the crucial moments in, in a battle to force their way through and shatter the enemy's resolve. As we'll discuss, that's quite important when we look at the closing stages of Waterloo. But in terms of the strategy, what's the other problem that Napoleon faces? Well, it's the inevitable thing that he knows how this plays out. He's done this in 1814. He's tried to let the enemy come to him, and it hasn't worked. For all that the 1814 campaign that he conducted was incredible in terms of demonstrating his ability to take a small force, strike, pivot, strike again, and keep the enemy on the back foot. The fact is that the sheer weight of numbers meant that he couldn't do anything transformative with those victories. So he knew full well, come 1815, that there was no point in playing that game all over again. What he also knew is that it would take time for the Allies to amass these forces against him. So that gave him a very small window of opportunity. And the thinking behind the Waterloo campaign is essentially this. Strike at the nearest force. Destroy that nearest force. Send at least one, if not two, of the coalition powers reeling from that, both militarily but also politically, and hope that that can be used as an opportunity to do two things. Firstly, to bolster support back home to try and demonstrate that Napoleon did represent a return to glory, even if he didn't really want to position himself as a glory ruler, but also to destabilise that coalition. So we're going back to that whole divide and rule mentality, which is so key to Napoleon's way of operating. And you see that divide and rule mentality in the strategy. So he identifies the nearest force, the nearest credible threat that he can strike against, which is these two forces that I've just mentioned to you, the Anglo-Dutch force under Wellington, and the Prussian force under Blücher, both of which are in modern-day Belgium. They're helping to defend the King of the Netherlands holdings, because Belgium and the Netherlands were combined into United Provinces at this point. And the idea for Napoleon is to play a very simple numbers game. He knows that combined, those two armies would outnumber him. But individually, he holds the numerical advantage. So whereas everybody else is thinking that Napoleon is going to go on one of these great sort of outflanking manoeuvres. And Wellington is constantly looking at his right flank, looking at the fact that his lines of communication run at almost right angles to his army, straight back to the Channel ports, which is where all of his supplies are coming from. So he's constantly almost neurotic about the idea that Napoleon is going to loop around that flank, cut the communication with the Channel ports, and then that's going to create all kinds of headaches for Wellington in terms of supply and communications. Now for Napoleon, that strategy doesn't actually work for him. Because if he loops around that flank, so in his case, loops around to the left, what that would just do is send Wellington's Anglo-Dutch force reeling towards the Prussian force, which is deployed out to the east. And so actually that just creates a bigger problem for him because then those two armies have combined. So going back to that divide and rule mentality, what he does is the thing that nobody's expecting. He smashes his way through a gap between the two forces, a very narrow gap, by making a lunge for the Belgian capital of Brussels. What that would then do is act a bit like a foot kicking its way in between two gates. 
So he uses the army to force the two allies to swing apart. And then once they're separated, he can hold one at bay with a small force, whilst he then encircles and crushes either one of the others. So that's Napoleon's plan all the way through the Waterloo campaign. The flip side to that is that that's exactly what the Allies are constantly trying to prevent. So Napoleon ends up dictating the way in which the whole campaign unfolds. On the 15th of June, Napoleon enacts this strategy. So he launches his army straight down the middle in that kind of lunge for Brussels. And the Allies are caught almost completely unawares. By the end of that first day, the 15th of June, the French forces are just to the south of what is a absolutely pivotal crossroads in terms of communication, the crossroads of Quatre Bras, literally the four arms. And the crucial factor in how this whole campaign unfolds is that actually it's Dutch troops which save the Allied campaign because they stand and they hold that crossroads. It's a single brigade under Saxon Weimar which holds that crossroads for just long enough for darkness to fall. And that therefore means that Wellington is able to use the crossroads as a point at which to concentrate his forces. If the crossroads had fallen, then what Napoleon would have achieved is he would have severed the communications between the Allied force and the Prussian force, and there wouldn't have been a Waterloo. It would have been as simple as that. The campaign would almost have been won. And so when news arrives of this back in Brussels, Wellington is actually at a ball held by the Duchess of Richmond. It's now become kind of very famous in history in terms of the story of Waterloo. But actually, there were a lot of balls being held in the city at that time. But Wellington's at this ball. He receives news. And the famous quote is, he's humbugged me by God. Because even without having occupied the crossroads, Napoleon is basically a day's march from Brussels. And it's going to take the Allies about a day to gather their forces together in order to be able to fight. So he's stolen a day's march. And the whole remainder of the Waterloo campaign becomes this kind of scramble to hold Napoleon back, to gather the forces together, to then enact the Allied strategy of fight combined. Tell us about fight combined, Zach. I need to see how Wellington actually manages to push Napoleon back here. Oh, it takes a long time. So before we get to pushing Napoleon back, we have to deal with Napoleon on the offensive and coming within a, a hair's breadth, genuinely a hair's breadth of victory, but then losing everything. So we have to then turn to the story of the 16th of June, 1815, when we see Napoleon's last victory, but we see twin battles on this day. So the battles of Catrebras and the Battle of Ligny. So at Catrebras, that's the center of operations for Wellington and his Anglo-Dutch force. Wellington and Blücher actually meet over the course of the day. You've got to bear in mind that throughout the night, orders have been sent out, almost in a kind of desperate rush by couriers to gather the army at the Catrebra crossroads. And so Wellington's plan is to concentrate the army at Catrebra, and then provided he's not attacked at the crossroads, he commits at a meeting with Blücher to marching to support Blücher. So the idea is that there'll be a small force to occupy the crossroads just in case, and the remainder of the force will be pumped along that road, which Napoleon came so close to taking, to then support the Prussian right flank, and then to strike at Napoleon, and basically do to Napoleon what Napoleon had been trying to do to the Allies. So kind of encircle him and crush him in one fell swoop. That's not what happens. So at Ligny, Napoleon fights a pretty classic battle. In terms of all of the hallmarks of Napoleon's strategy, you see a number of the key things that he does. So it starts with an artillery barrage, which ends up being very costly to the Prussians because of the nature of the ground. If folks ever have the opportunity to go out to Waterloo, I would urge them to also take a visit to Ligny and to see the difference in the ground because the ground is very kind of shallow in terms of the nature of the slopes, which was a huge problem for the Prussians because they were so exposed. The fighting, as the name of the battle suggests, centres on the town of Ligny, which Napoleon uses a way of kind of drawing in the Prussian reserves. And so he, this is the kind of the classic Napoleon tactic, pin the enemy, draw in their reserves, and at the point that they're about to break, launch the hammer blow. And he very nearly succeeds. The reason it goes slightly wrong for him is that the point at which he's about to launch that critical hammer blow, which should have shattered the Prussian defences, this very odd force appears out on the French extreme left flank. 
nobody knows who these troops are. James is looking on it in amusement. <laughs> who I are these, these mysterious folks? They're actually French troops. They're Derlon's corps, part of the force that was originally out with the French forces at Quatre Bras. Napoleon had summoned them. He had sent word to Marshal Ney, who had been commanding at Quatre Bras, ordering that Derlon's corps be sent to support him. But for reasons that nobody's entirely sure as to why, Napoleon isn't aware of where they are. And so when this force materialises out on the French left flank, nobody's quite sure, is this Derlon, who's finally arriving with the reinforcements, or is this actually Wellington, who's pulled the dummy on Ney and somehow managed to find a way to send the reinforcements to support the Prussian forces that Napoleon is fighting. Now, if they had been Wellington's troops, this would have completely changed the whole strategy on the field. So Napoleon had to pause. And that was quite crucial in terms of giving the Prussians time to kind of regroup, reorganise and return themselves to a state where they could continue to the defence. But then just as Napoleon's aides establish, no, it's Derlon's troops, it's all right. Those troops then about turn and march straight back towards Bras because they've been recalled by Ney. And so this absolutely crucial body of around 12,000 men spends the day of the 16th of June marching between the battles of Bras and Ligny without fighting. And that is absolutely pivotal because it didn't matter where Derlon's troops were used, they would absolutely have made the difference in the course of that campaign. Using the Bras, they roll up Wellington's left flank and take the crossroads almost with almost pathetic ease, quite frankly, in terms of how desperate the fighting was and how precarious the Anglo-Dutch situation was at Catchabra, it would have been incredibly easy for them to just roll up the Anglo-Dutch position. Equally, had they been committed at Ligny, particularly at the moment at which they were arriving, they could have been absolutely crucial in turning the tide of that battle. As it was, they're not used in either. And that's one of the most significant failures for Napoleon of the entire Waterloo campaign. There's only one other point at which he's able to potentially have clutched at victory. So that's the situation at Ligny. Let's now quickly flip over to Bras, where the fighting has been just as fierce. Now, I mentioned that Wellington goes for a meeting with Blücher. By the time he gets back to Bras, he finds that the situation has completely changed. The French have started to tentatively go on the offensive. Now, why tentatively? Particularly considering that we're talking here about a guy who Napoleon himself described as the bravest of the brave. Well, Ney knows Wellington. And what you have on the morning of the 16th of June is a situation where actually Wellington's reputation is worth an entire army that's not even at the crossroads. Ney knew about Wellington's habit of hiding his men in folds in the ground. And if anybody gets the chance to visit Bras and look very carefully at the ground, you'll see that it undulates a great deal. So it's an ideal place to hide troops. And so Ney looks at the situation is acutely aware of the fact that actually his army isn't in position yet. The forces that he has at his disposal are still strung out on the road behind him. And so he waits and very tentatively pushes forwards. Had he launched an attack with everything that he had available to him on the morning of the 16th, he'd probably have taken the crossroads. And again, the whole Waterloo campaign would have been so very different. As it was, by the time that Wellington returned, actually the French are right on the edge of the crossroads. They're only about a few hundred metres from taking it, but Wellington is able to just about keep the French at bay, move in reinforcements, and the whole story of the Anglo-Dutch fight on the 16th of June is kind of desperately plugging gaps to just keep the French held off and hold the defence as they start to move around flanks. And gradually, you see a situation where the Allies fight their way to a very bloody stalemate on the 16th of June. They manage to retake the ground that they'd lost over the course of the morning, and so they're back at the, there's a farm just to the south of the crossroads called the Gamioncourt Farm. And that becomes sort of the high tide of the Anglo-Dutch advance. And so as night descends, you have a stalemate at Catrebras, which is great for Wellington because it means that potentially he can either go on the offensive the following day against Ney's force, or he can send some troops to reinforce Blücher and the Prussians at Ligny. However, it's all gone a little bit horribly wrong for the Prussians at Ligny because Napoleon has finally sent in that last attack. And so, although it's not a catastrophic defeat for the Prussians, they're forced to withdraw. There is no other option. And 
This is the last moment at which Napoleon could have won the Waterloo campaign. Because if he'd been able to follow up, not necessarily aggressively, but at least remain in contact with the Prussians, he would have known where they were and would have been able to continue to apply the pressure which could have dissuaded Blücher from committing to supporting Wellington. Effectively, he could have forced the Prussians away from the Anglo-Dutch force. And then again, Napoleon would have finally achieved that divide and conquer strategy. But he doesn't. For reasons that we continue to debate, Napoleon allows the Prussians to escape almost scot-free on the night of the 16th of June. And it's the same story the following day. And so it leaves a situation on the morning of the 17th where actually the French don't really know in which direction the Prussians have gone because they effectively had two options. One was to pull back to the north towards Varve, and by doing that they could maintain communications with the Anglo-Dutch force under Wellington. But alternatively they could have pulled back on their own lines of communication towards Germany, which obviously is a very different prospect strategically and geographically and it therefore would have achieved that splitting of the two forces. Because the Prussians weren't being harried as effectively by the French as we might have expected, actually they're able to make that decision, no, we can move to support Wellington. And so you have a situation where actually Napoleon loses the campaign, not at Waterloo, he loses it in the aftermath of Ligny. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out of pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. There are stories to tell, myths to explore. Legends that shaped the medieval world to captivate the imagination. I'm Matt Lewis, and with my co-host, Dr. Kat Jarman, I've gone medieval. We're waiting here for you to join us. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and let everyone know that you've gone medieval with History Hits. You call this a mistake, but I'm just trying to think of what Napoleon's ambitions are here. He knows he's got a smaller force. He knows he's got to hit them hard. He knows he's got to bloody their nose in the hope that they will retreat and thus even further divide the forces. This was the whole aim at the beginning. So is this a strategic failure by Napoleon? Or is this a calculated risk where he's just trying to hold on to his men, hold on to his forces and resources in the hope that he's dealt that bloody blow, withdrawn back a bit and just holding on to see whether or not they, uh, well, bugger off so that he can say that he's got his first victory. For Napoleon, he knows full well that this is an all or nothing campaign. This is a huge roll of the dice. He has to absolutely win. Now, in terms of is this Napoleon just kind of using the opportunity to regather and resupply and give his men a rest. Well, that's certainly the argument that is sometimes put forward by fans of Napoleon, that the reason there's no 
vigorous pursuit of the Prussians is firstly that they're not broken, which is quite key. You know, this isn't a crushing defeat for the Prussians, but it is certainly a bloody nose and it is certainly a defeat. But as the Prussians pull back, you've got to think about what Wellington's doing. Wellington sits at the crossroads. He sits there all night on the 16th of June and he sits there all morning on the 17th because it's not until the morning of the 17th that he gets news of what's happened to the Prussians at Ligny. And so he's able to use the morning to work out where he's going to pull back to and to issue those orders to start moving the troops up. Now, you've got to bear in mind also Napoleon's character as a commander. This is a guy who is the master of striking, pivoting, striking, pivoting. And in fact, he gained this nickname, the Italian whirlwind, during the 1790s for that ability to constantly keep, almost like a heavyweight boxer, just keep landing those punches, keeping the enemy guessing about where the next strike was going to come from. You don't see that in the 1815 campaign. And I would even go so far as to say that if a younger Napoleon had fought the Waterloo campaign, he would absolutely have won. Napoleon, on his best day, was more than a match for Wellington and Blücher. No, absolutely no question about that. But this was not Napoleon on his best day by any stretch of the imagination. He spends the morning of the 17th of June touring the battlefield, making efforts to deal with the wounded. Now, all of that's very laudable. And as somebody who normally lambasts Napoleon for an unwillingness to care about the lives of his men, actually his actions on the 17th are great in terms of looking after you know, the people who you've sent to fight your battle for you. But in focusing on that, he's lost sight of the reason that he's there in the first place, which is to achieve that overwhelming victory. And because he doesn't use that morning to descend on the Anglo-Dutch force, to encircle it and defeat it, the force is able to escape back to the famous Waterloo battlefield. And the Allied withdrawal is admittedly helped by a thunderstorm, which descends just as the last Anglo-Dutch troops are pulling out of Bras. And you see the British cavalry kind of engaging in a series of rearguard actions against the, the French vanguard. But the fact that it's pouring down with rain means it's very hard for the French to sort of sweep around the flanks of this Anglo-Dutch column and attack it in various places. So it's, the weather certainly helps that situation. But over the course of the 17th, it's basically a story of communication and withdrawal. So the whole time, messages going backwards and forwards between Wellington and Blücher and Blücher to Wellington about what's the plan for the following day. And over the course of the evening and night of the 17th to 18th of June, Wellington gets a cast iron commitment from Blücher. He will, come what may, he will send at least one corps of men to support Wellington at Waterloo. All Wellington needs to do is hold the line at Waterloo and Blücher will come. So in effect, what you've got is a reversal of the situation that they had planned at Ligny, where Wellington was going to march to support Blücher. Now the situation is reversed. And that's effectively the Waterloo campaign done and dusted, if you like. But it's because Wellington gets that commitment that he stands and fights. And people sometimes turn around and say, oh, well, the Prussians saved Wellington at Waterloo. He was lost if it hadn't been for the Prussians turning up when they did. Actually, that comment completely misses the point. This was the plan. This was always the plan, fight combined. And yes, the timing of the arrival of the Prussians, who actually arrived far later than had initially been intended, was actually key in terms of making Waterloo the crushing victory for Napoleon that it turned out to be. But nonetheless, the point is that it wasn't as though the Prussians were just kind of casually marching across the Belgian countryside and happened across the Battle of Waterloo. They came with intent, and this was always part of the plan. If there hadn't been that commitment, from the Prussians, Wellington would not have stood and fought at Waterloo, and we wouldn't have a Battle of Waterloo at all. So, Zach, tell us, what happens when the Prussians finally arrive to support Wellington? Well, in a way, actually, the, as I say, the Prussians arrive late. The Battle of Waterloo has started and is continuing for a few hours before the Prussians start to move in on the field. In fact, Napoleon doesn't see or allegedly see the Prussians approaching until about one, two o'clock in the afternoon. Now, actually, if you stand at Wellington, at Napoleon's command post, and look out towards where the Prussians would have come from, you can't really see particularly well in that direction. So there's a lot of debate about, did he actually see the Prussians coming? So the battle itself starts at 11.30. Now, that's quite late in the day. Napoleon would have liked to have started earlier. 
A lot is made about the fact that it's been raining and so Napoleon waits a couple of hours to let the ground dry out. When you talk to the experts, and particularly if you've ever walked the battlefield, they will tell you that waiting a couple of hours for the ground to dry out really wasn't going to do much because it's clay soil. And so if it's been raining the night before and I've walked the battlefield after it's rained, two hours doesn't dry out the ground enough to make a difference in terms of moving up men and artillery. What is key though, is that Napoleon's force is strung out on the road to the battlefield. And so that couple of hours gives him the time to move up the forces and organize in such a way that he can then launch the attack. It starts off in a kind of semi-classic Napoleon fashion, the massing of a grand battery, the bombardment of the Allied position, and what is meant to be a pinning maneuver. So there's this descent on one of three forward positions that Wellington has occupied in front of the ridge that he's positioned his men on and behind. Now those three forward positions are the farms of Hougoumont, which is out on Wellington's right flank, the French left flank, La Haysant, which is right in the middle, about 300 yards from the centre of the Allied Ridge, and then Papalo, which is out on Wellington's left flank. Now, throughout the battle, Wellington was hugely concerned about a French sweep around his right flank. And if you look at the displacement of his forces, you can see he heavily loads the bulk of his army into the right flank in preparation for the French swinging round and attacking in that direction. So what Napoleon does is really quite shrewd. He sends forward a corps to pressurise the Chateau of Hougoumont, aiming to use that to draw in reinforcements into the Chateau for its defence, but also using that to pin Wellington's forces that he has out on his right flank and make him kind of think this is where it's all going to go down, whilst actually launching the main hammer blow up towards the kind of centre right, the centre left from the Anglo-Dutch perspective. Now, things at Hougoumont go quite badly wrong for the French because it ends up becoming a sort of siege within a battle. The commander there ends up sort of getting a, almost sort of sucked into the operations. And so whilst the force was meant to just mask the chateau and apply the pressure, what they actually do is become really committed to trying to take it. At one stage, they very nearly do. We have the famous kind of paintings of closing of the gates when they manage to get through a gate that actually has been left open around the back of the chateau for easier communication with the ridge. It's quite a kind of rookie error, but they don't expect the French to get round to the back, but some forces do. They try and cut their way into the centre of the farmyard, but they're not able to maintain that toehold. And the guards, but also uh, significantly a number of Hanoverian and Dutch troops are involved in closing those gates and trapping the Frenchmen inside. And there are actually a series of break-ins into Hougoumont, but that's, again, another story. So as that's playing out over the course of the day on the Allied right flank, Napoleon, at around one o'clock, sends in what is meant to be the big hammer blow. And this is Derlon's corps, who, as we know, hasn't done much fighting so far. So they're an ideally placed force to be used to strike straight at the centre right. It's a really clever play. Napoleon sends his men in in what are known as columns. These are great kind of oblongs, really, of infantry. And you've got to bear in mind Derlon's corps has 12,500 men in it. So it's this huge hammer blow that is meant to just kind of batter its way through sheer weight of numbers up into the Allied position on the crest of the ridge, and then from there roll up the remainder of Wellington's force. They come really quite close. So just as they're about to gain the crest of the ridge, they have to force their way through a hedge. And one of the most impeccably timed cavalry charges in Napoleonic history is launched by the Household and Union Heavy Cavalry Brigades. Folks will know the famous paintings, Scotland Forever, this charge sweeping in and it smashes Darlon's corps. Got to bear in mind 12,500 men, but the timing is impeccable because they are disorganized from having to push their way through this hedge. And so they just swamp Derlon's men. Sergeant Ewart famously takes an eagle in the process. But as is quite often the case with the British cavalry during this period, they get carried away. You see repeated instances of this throughout the Peninsula War, and they overextend themselves. And rather than limiting themselves to taking out Derlon's corps, they charge all the way to the French guns, which admittedly isn't very far. I mean, Waterloo is a very confined battlefield. It's about a mile deep, a couple of miles wide. So a really small battlefield by the standards of the time. But nonetheless, they charge all of the way to the French guns and then they get outflanked by French lancers 
and they get cut to pieces in the process because they've charged all the way across this battlefield, their horses are blown, they're no longer organised, they're in their reserves, and so they just get cut apart. And very few, actually, of the heavy cavalry make it back. The heavy cavalry on the Allied side is basically taken out at this point in the battle. Then you get a bit of a lull, where both sides are kind of licking their wounds a little bit. What ends up becoming a quite pivotal part of the battle is not so much the arrival of the Prussians as Ney's seemingly quite odd cavalry charge. Now the reason that this is quite crucial is because of the way in which it goes wrong. Now Ney's cavalry charge is often kind of positioned as this sort of suicidal attempt to break Wellington's line. Napoleon is struggling with his health throughout the Waterloo campaign and it's said that he takes time off the battlefield whilst his guns continue to pound the Anglo-Dutch position and they inflict huge damage. It's said that Ney sees Wellington pull his men back and then screams, Wellington retreats! Folks will have seen the famous scene from the 1970 Waterloo film. Wellington retreats! squeals Ney and off charge the French cavalry to supposedly mop up the remainder of the Anglo-Dutch army. In reality, Wellington pulls his men back a little bit, admittedly, in order to give them more shelter on the reverse slope of the ridge. It's a classic Wellington tactic. But it's thought that actually the decision to charge in with a large portion of the French cavalry wasn't about a suicidal attempt to break the Anglo-Dutch line as much as to distract Wellington whilst Derlon's corps reformed for a second assault. Now, the reason that that goes horribly wrong is that just as those troops are starting to prepare for that second assault, and bear in mind how close Napoleon had come, so a second assault on that position could have potentially worked. Just as the French are preparing for that, the Prussians start to arrive, and they start to arrive in meaningful numbers to apply that pressure, which means that Derlon's corps can no longer be used for another attack on the Anglo-Dutch position. They need to be used to keep the Prussians at arm's length. And so Ney's troops are left in a position where they were meant to pin, and now they kind of have an impossible situation because they're facing cavalry that have done the classic defence against cavalry, which is to deploy into squares, and cavalry very rarely break squares. You get a couple of instances where it happens in other battles, but it's so rare. It certainly doesn't happen at Waterloo, which therefore means that they just get shot to pieces. It's a bloodbath for the cavalry, and the Prussians begin to arrive in ever greater numbers. The Prussians are crucial for a number of reasons. Firstly, when the first Prussian contingent starts to arrive, they're used by Wellington to sort of prop up his left flank and move men to points in the line where the artillery barrage is really starting to tell in terms of weakening the Anglo-Dutch forces. The other place where the Prussians really apply the pressure is Plants Noir, which is a village, town slash village, in the sort of right rear of Napoleon's position which is really quite crucial for Napoleon because if the Prussians could achieve a breakthrough at Plants Noir, they could cut straight behind his army and then, lo and behold, finally that Allied strategy of encircling Napoleon has played out. So they've turned the tables on him. And so over the course of the afternoon, Napoleon is increasingly forced to commit reserves to try and hold the Prussians at arm's length whilst using skirmishers to whittle down the Anglo-Dutch force and it's an impossible situation. He's kind of fighting on two fronts, almost. He's got the Anglo-Dutch force in front of him, and then he's got the Prussian force to his right, and trying to fend them both off. There is this last glimmer of hope for him, which is when the farm of La Haysant, which bear in mind I said is in the front of centre of the Anglo-Dutch position, falls. The troops in there, the Hanoverian troops, have been holding it throughout the day, but they run out of ammunition, which seems like quite a fundamental error to not supply the troops with ammunition but you know they've been fighting all day the farm gets its forward of the allied position it gets encircled it's impossible to get ammunition into them and to the credit of those Hanoverian troops they fire every single round and then they fight their way out with bayonets so it gives a, a real kind of indication of the heroism of these men that they don't just fight until they've got a few rounds left and then use that to try and pull out they fight every single round and then cut their way out. It's incredible in terms of the bravery and the discipline to kind of keep these men together and keep them believing that they can fight their way out. And you get some great stories in there about people who are receive sort of head wounds and, and so on, and they continue fighting, such as the determination, which gives you that sense of just how crucial this coalition element of this victory is, that Wellington's prepared to trust 
troops like that with a key position says a lot about the fact that he believed in certain elements of his force, which were not British, which were not his classic Peninsular War battalions that he had fought with all the way across Spain and Portugal and southern France with. But once La Haysant falls, it opens the way for a final assault. And so Napoleon sends in his Imperial Guard. Bear in mind what I said, these are meant to be the shock troops, but they're not the Imperial Guard of old. These are not the hardened veterans of so many campaigns. Yes, you have a core of those types of troops there, but it's also had its numbers bolstered by troops that aren't of the calibre that would ordinarily have been inducted into the Guard. And other elements of the Guard have also been used to hold the Prussians at arm's length. Napoleon famously sends in a single battalion to retake the entire village of Plancenoit at one point in the afternoon, and they succeed. So you, you know, it gives you the sense that actually the Imperial Guard were an incredible force, but it's a very small contingent that ends up getting sent in to try and achieve this final breakthrough. Wellington gathers what's left of his army. Bear in mind that it's been dwindled over the course of the day by cannon fire, by the cavalry attacks, which do inflict losses, by the skirmisher fire. And you have this sort of, well, it's often cast as a kind of do or die situation where Wellington has to hold the line. The Prussians are just really starting to apply the pressure. If Napoleon could achieve a breakthrough at this point, then maybe, just maybe, he could perhaps force the Anglo-Dutch force to withdraw. That would then perhaps give him time to try and move other forces against the Prussians. But really, I think the game is up for Napoleon by this point. But in any case, the Guard are sent in. And you have a situation where the Imperial Guard actually doesn't go in as a single block, as people often sort of try and portray. This isn't a column of Imperial Guard going in. They actually go in in three waves. Gareth Glover's done some great research in terms of unpicking a lot of the myths here. And you have a lot of debate about which units individually end up having the honour of beating the Imperial Guard. And lots of these units fight for that honour. You've got the 1st 52nd, who claim to have taken the Guard in the flank and therefore shattered their attack that way. Actually, because they go in in waves, lots of different units end up facing off against the Guard. So you have all of the coalition forces actually being involved in one way or the other. Famously, the Grenadier Guards, our the British Army's Grenadier Guards, famously fight off the Imperial Guard as well. Wellington calls to one of his sub-commanders, now Maitland, now is your time. And then he supposedly says, up guards and atom. And then you have one of the last great myths of the Waterloo battlefield, which is the cry supposedly goes up across the entire French army, la gare recule, the Imperial Guard is broken, and then supposedly the entire French army gives up and runs away. Now, you've studied warfare for many years, James. You know that the reality of that happening, even on a battlefield as confined as Waterloo, is not very likely. What actually happens is that you see a series of different events at various places on the battlefield combining really fortuitously for the Allies in terms of shattering the French morale in different places. So as the guard break, that is then followed up in quite a limited way by the troops that Wellington has out on that right flank. So they sweep across towards the road that runs through the centre of the battlefield past La Haysant and basically clear the French out of that section of the field, whilst also being quite mindful of the fact that there are other French forces to their south. You then also see the Prussians start to achieve a breakthrough at Plants Noir, and then out on Wellington's left flank, where Prussians have been arriving over the course of the day, enabling him to sort of pump his remaining troops out towards his sort of centre and right. The Prussian troops achieve a breakthrough in that corner of the field. So in three places, you've got situations where the French are really facing the pressure. And that is the point at which the army crumbles. People say that there is a last stand of the guard. I'm afraid it's all a myth. A few battalions, a couple of battalions, do stand in square for a very short time trying to hold off the advancing British light cavalry. Because bear in mind, the heavy cavalry is spent by this point. They do give the light cavalry something to think about, but then they too break and run as the infantry starts to come up. So there is no great stand of the guard. Folks might, if they ever get the chance to visit the battlefield, will see the Wounded Eagle Monument, which is meant to mark the place where the guard stood and fought and died. I'm sorry to spoil it for folks, but I'm afraid any stand that took place didn't take place there. It actually took place just to the north of La Belle Alliance. So I'm very sorry to spoil the glamour and the illusion, but that is effectively it. Napoleon has fought his last battle. The Prussians follow up the assault over the course of the night, and Wellington is left to survey the devastation 
that is left on a battlefield that's two, maybe three miles wide and one mile deep. The French have lost something like 24,000 killed and wounded. The Allies have lost 19,000 killed and wounded. And Wellington is, is visibly shaken when he's speaking to folks the following day. Um, he repeatedly um, talks about how it was a near run thing. There's almost this sort of sense of not quite shell shock, but of in the way that he keeps repeating this phrase suggests it's affected him really quite deeply. Um, in terms of does he downplay the Prussian involvement as time marches on? Well, I just want to leave folks with one line from Wellington's dispatch. This is the letter that he writes to the British government about the Waterloo campaign and the battle that's unfolded. And he says this, I should not do justice to my own feelings or to Marshal Blücher and the Prussian army if I did not attribute the successful result of this arduous day to the cordial and timely assistance I received from them. In other words, for all that Wellington said it would not have done if I had not been there, he's also admitting here it would not have done if Blücher had not been there. And so we go back to that point that Waterloo is not a British victory, not a German victory, it's a coalition victory. It's fascinating to think that even Wellington thought it was a close-run thing. And those figures that you say about the casualties and the fatalities are quite shocking, actually, because when it comes to a clear victory, you would expect the coalition forces to have far fewer dead than those who were defeated. But by the sounds of it, when you've got 19,000 on one side and 24 on the other, it shows you just how close it was in terms of this battle of attrition, this bloody, bloody battle on a tiny battlefield in Belgium, the Battle of Waterloo. And I think you've also shown us the battles within the Battle of Waterloo, which really highlight those important coalition aspects and how, if it wasn't for all of these operating quite surprisingly seamlessly in many ways, then there just wouldn't have been that victory that has gone down in British history. Thank you so much, Zach, but you've got to tell us, where can people learn more about this? I know that you're doing lots to commemorate the 206th anniversary, so go and plug away. Oh, that's very kind of you. Funnily enough, as this goes out today, my first book is coming out. Well, it's not a book that I've written, but yeah, it's called The Sword and the Spirit. It's an edited collection that looks at a number of elements, uh, Napoleon and his mental state. There's also a great chapter in there about the Prussian side of things, looking at Clausewitz's role. Folks will know about Karl von Clausewitz, who famously wrote On War. He was actually serving in the Prussian army at Waterloo, was at Ligny, and then subsequently at the Battle of Vavre which goes on throughout the course of what's happening on the 18th, as the Prussians kind of hold a contingent of the French army that has finally caught up with them, whilst the remainder marches out. But that's another story. So yeah, that's now out with Hellion, uh, The Sword and the Spirit. So folks can buy that if, if they're interested. There's some great work in there. I also have my own podcast, The Napoleonicist. In fact, last year for the 205th anniversary, I did a whole fortnight's worth of content, including Voices from the Battlefield, which was the individual accounts of soldiers who had fought during the battle. So folks can scroll back through the past listings. Uh, there'll also be a podcast episode going out that brings together some different voices to try and tell the story specifically through the eyes of the soldiers. If folks search for Napoleon Assist on their podcast platforms, I'm sure they'll be able to find it. Um, if folks want to understand about the battle in terms of reading, what I would recommend is... Either look at the work of Gareth Glover, who's done a lot of work at myth-busting Waterloo, or the best single one-chapter summary that I ever read of Waterloo was in a book by Russ Forster, where he looks at Waterloo and the way in which it had been memorialised. And in terms of understanding how all of these different aspects of the battle overlap with one another, I think it's peerless. So folks should definitely uh, go and have a little look for that. Amazing. Thank you so much, Zach. I'm not sure that there is anyone better who could have taken us through those intricacies of the battle and to have debunked those myths and misconceptions. You're always welcome, as you know, on the Warfare Podcast. Oh, that's very kind of you. Thanks very much. It's been great fun. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. 
United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. And before you go, remember, as a Warfare listener, you get a special discount at History Hit. Subscribers get access to blissfully, uninterrupted, ad-free podcasts and thousands of hours of history documentaries. You've got everything from the American Revolution to my own documentaries like Traces of War, Weapons of War and 24 Hours in Normandy, where I follow in the footsteps of the Green Howards on D-Day from their beach landings to being awarded the Victoria Cross and all the way through their first day where they made it seven miles inland further than any other British or American unit. So head over to historyhit.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes and use the code WARFARE to get 50% off your next three months. That's the code WARFARE to get 50% off. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free episodes within the app. So give it a go. I know you're gonna love it.